0: Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we are going to talk with Ted Wyman of the Winnipeg Sun about the four-game suspension handed down to Mark Scheifele and how the Jets can bounce back from a game one loss without their top center. Also, we're going to talk about the retirement of Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, stepping down from the University of Duke at the end of next season. So we're going to talk to my dad about it because he loves Duke and college basketball. You'll hear it on the podcast. We are pleased to welcome to the show Ted Wyman, our friend from the Winnipeg Sun Sports Editor. Ted, how are you doing tonight?
1: Doing pretty well, Christian. Uh, Just wanted to say, anybody who hasn't seen the highlight of Canada's game-winning goal in overtime today, Mm. go and watch it. That was really a beautiful goal.
0: Three-on-three three overtime at the uh, international level, by the way, in the quarterfinal round. So it was Troy Stetcher with a great setup to Andrew Mangiapane. Uh, so about a half hour ago, Ted, the news came out that Mark Shifley was just going to miss the next four games because of the hit he laid last night on Jake Evans. Your initial and immediate reaction to that number?
1: Yeah, um, pretty high. Uh, you know, it's stiff because this is the playoffs. This is not like a regular season suspension. I can't even imagine what the suspension would have been if it were the regular season. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty strong statement by the Department of Player Safety that Mark Shifley made a very reckless hit on Jake Evans. That's the way I thought all along. It was a reckless play. I don't think Mark Shifley is a dirty hockey player, and I don't think Mark Shifley was trying to intentionally injure Jake Evans, but he was irresponsible in making that hit after Jake Evans put the puck into the net. And, uh, you know, there's some people out there certainly who would say that it was, uh, you know, a clean hit, including Paul Maurice. But the Department of Player Safety clearly did not agree. They called it charging, and they called it a suspension-worthy offense and a strong suspension of four games, which is going to cost the Jets their leading scorer for four games in a seven-game series, and they're already down one. Um, You know, it is a really big, strong penalty. And I got to tell you, Mark Shifley really has cost this team badly by making that play.
0: Yeah, the NHL says uh, there's significant head contact. It caused injury. They took that into account. They didn't agree with Mark Scheifele's argument that he was trying to play the puck. If you look at the video, it doesn't really look like he tried to play the puck at all. And so they end up with four games. I guess the frustration from fans, Ted, to some degree, isn't so much with the hit, although I have seen a lot of people think it shouldn't have been suspended at all. The number four seems to be the problem for people. And perhaps a lack of consistency from the Department of Player Safety?
1: Yeah, that does uh, come up, obviously, because they do have uh, pretty varying numbers when they come to their decisions on these suspensions. And, you know, Ryan Reeves, uh, the Winnipegger with the Vegas Golden Knights, just recently received a two-game suspension, and he is a repeat offender of, uh, of several times, whereas there is no repeat offenses here from Mark Shifley. He has not been this type of player at all in his career. And, you know, you really wouldn't have expected something like this to happen with Mark Scheisley. I thought it was out of character. So I thought maybe the Department of Player Safety would take that into account and not give him as stiff a suspension. But clearly they saw this as something that was just a strong enough of an offense that that's how they had to proceed with it. And, you know, in a lot of ways it's hard to argue because I don't know – so I remember seeing a play that was almost that shocking. You know, it, it really was. You were in the press box, Christian. Everybody, oh, it wasn't yeah. very many people in the building, but every single person was quiet in that building, except for the players on the ice who were screaming at each other. But, you know, there was, it really was not a good play. I did not think it was a good hockey play, and I didn't think that it was something that should have happened at all. And the Jets are going to pay dearly for it.
0: So the conversation will continue uh, as people debate because it is sports and sports are all about debates. But let's look at the solutions now as my cat tries to get my attention while I'm on the radio. Uh, we've got a situation now where the Jets have a hole to fill. The top line center hole is now empty for the next four games. We saw in the bubble last year Andrew Cott move up to that spot, but they did not have Pierre-Luc Dubois last year. They did not have Paul Stasny last year. We also don't know if Stastny will be able to play tomorrow night. What do you think the Jets should do in that number one center hole?
1: Well, the lineup changes, in my opinion, are entirely predicated on whether Paul Stastny can play or not. And if it's me making that choice, I put Paul Stastny in that number one center role with Blake Wheeler and uh, Kyle Connor. I think he's the guy that can handle the responsibilities at both ends of the ice the best. He's the veteran player. I think the Jets missed Paul Stastny immensely in that game. He's just such a leader for this team uh, late in the season and throughout uh, these playoffs so far. And I think that, you know, if they can get him back in the lineup, we don't even know what his injury is, Christian, so it's not. Uh, there's no guarantee he's going to play at all in this series. When they say day-to-day, that could be <laughs> a lot of days. But he also might be back tomorrow, and if he is, then I think that really works as a good solution. And then you can keep Pierre-Luc Dubois, Andrew Kopp, and uh, Nikolai Ehlers on the second line and uh, and see if you can make things work that way. But if Sassny can't play, I would think they would move Kopp up to that top line and maybe bring in Christian Vestline and play on the wings with uh, Dubois and Ehlers. It, it, it's, you know, it, there's there's options there for Paul Maurice, and he's not going to share any of them, probably not until... No chance. Game time tomorrow, but you know, I think that's one that could work.
0: You don't think they would look at Dubois in that top line role? Well, they might.
1: They might. I just think Stastny is the best fit for it, personally. Uh, you know, Dubois I think looked better in the last few games. That's questionable. When you talk to different fans, there's quite a few who don't think, still don't think he's doing much. But I liked the speed burst he made in the game last night. Uh, I thought he had a really good net drive early in the game, Um, and he had a really nice pass to Derek Forbert to set up a a goal in the third period for the Jets. So it's getting there. I mean, if you're getting last season, Pierre Luc Dubois would say absolutely. He he could be the last season the way he played. He could have been the number one center on a lot of teams in the NHL, and you wouldn't have blinked an eye. But this year, he has not played like a number one center. He hasn't scored since April fifth. So, no, I don't necessarily think that it would be an an easy choice to elevate him into that role.
0: The injury to Dylan DeMello, I believe, is a huge one for the Winnipeg Jets. Again, we don't know anything about it because it's the playoffs, but it didn't sound great. If he's not able to go, I'm I'm guessing Jordy Ben comes in. Tucker Pullman goes to the, the top pairing with Josh Morrissey because of familiarity there. But that really hurts them defensively, doesn't it? I think he's their best actual defender.
1: Big penalty killer too. Uh, a lot of things that Dylan DeMello does well for the Winnipeg Jets and um, also a really good calming voice in that room. I, I think that's a big loss for them, and it sure doesn't seem like there's much sense that he's going to play tomorrow. Strange things happen in the playoffs, but at least that's the indications we were getting today and I certainly do think Jordy Ben will come in and play on the right side alongside Logan Stanley. The nice part about that is that Ben has played 20 career NHL playoff games, um, you know, and that's, a, that's an important factor. It really is, uh, because if, they, if it wasn't that, then you're bringing in someone like Billy Hainala, who hasn't ever played a playoff game. I think that's a good option for the Jets to bring in a veteran to replace a veteran. Um, but as you said, it now will mess up their right-left combinations and put Tucker Pullman into a higher-minute situation. Uh, not good all around for
0: the Jets. So looking at the, the game last night, just from a, you know the first 59 minutes point of view before the Shifley hit, it, it just seemed like the Jets, I thought, and we weren't sure what the rest versus rust would look like, but it just seemed like they were a team that was slow getting out of the gates after a long break we've seen this season, Ted. They have not been good following long layoffs, now 2-4, and four on the season in such situations of three or more days off. They were better as the game went along. Do you feel like that's just probably a one-off because we've seen them as well bounce back a lot from losses this season?
1: Man, I might have said that uh, earlier, Christian. You know, I I really thought uh, heading into the series that there was a good chance that Montreal was going to be the better team in game one. They just were coming right back from game seven the other night. They just carried on their routine travel on to Winnipeg. Did everything the same, and then went out on the ice and played the same way, and they were the better team on the ice, and they won. Winnipeg obviously couldn't match that early, especially because they were off for as long as they were. But you know, so so my thought was that that might happen in game one, and then as the series went on, the Jets could start wearing them down um, because they would be they their, their rest would start to come in handy. There's going to be three games and four nights coming up in a couple of days, starting tomorrow night. And that could be really difficult for the Montreal Canadiens. Now, that being said, this situation with the Jets not having Scheifele, not having DeMello, potentially not having Spasny, that is a lot to overcome. So it's hard to imagine them, you know, doing, you know, coming back and and really starting to take control of this series at this point. But there's a reason why this team was built the way it was. It's got a lot of depth. Montreal does it. They go out there without top-line players. And they have four lines that are fairly equal, and they get the job done. Uh, And the Jets need to embrace that philosophy and can make it work. They didn't do it well when they lost Shifley in the bubble last year, which makes a lot of people not very confident for how they'll do it this year. But they're way better prepared to deal with that, and we already mentioned a couple of reasons why, Paul Stastny and Pierre-Luc Dubois.
0: Well, they also lost Line A and Appleton in game one as well. So that was three forwards help. right away. And they, they're they losing one. Sure, it's stifly again, but it they seem, yeah, a little bit better equipped. And Paul Maurice said that today. So uh, final question before we let you go, Ted. Just I, I want to see if you agree with me, but it was only 500 people. and I And I know they don't make a lot of noise, but did you sense a different energy in the building last night before the game, or was that just my own personal perception?
1: Oh, definitely. Before the game, there was a different energy. I think it's just an excitement because you just see that there are fans there. Uh, You can see them waving towels. You can see them cheering. You can hear them. And the players can see that, too, and they can sense that. And everybody gets a little sense of excitement. And I don't know if it's just excitement to have supporters, necessarily. I think it's excitement to see that tiny bit of normalcy, that tiny indication that maybe things after this 15 month period that's been so difficult for everybody might just start to ease up and we might get back to doing things that we love and for so many of us that means going to hockey games and cheering and getting excited and and you know backing the Winnipeg Jets and I, you know that's how i took it but as a as a person who loves this city and who loves attending hockey games covering them and loves the uh excitement of a building filled with fans whether it's in winnipeg or anywhere else i just found it uplifting for that reason alone
0: we're on the same page on that one ted appreciate your time as always and we'll see you in the press box tomorrow night
1: all right christian thanks very much
0: that's ted wyman winnipeg sun sports editor and yeah lot to lot to talk about with the winnipeg jets it's the playoffs and the adversity bus has arrived at the station Seismic news in college basketball yesterday. Mike shashevsky who had been the men's basketball coach at Duke University since 1980, announced he'd be stepping down at the end of the 2021-22 season. Former player and current associate coach John Shire will take over. Coach K has more wins than any other Division I men's coach. 1,170 and counting, five national titles. And to talk about this, Coach K's legacy the biggest college basketball fan I know, No, to Duke lover Rob O'Mell, otherwise known as my dad. I talked to him earlier, paused Bruins game tonight for this chat, and I started by asking my dad what his immediate reaction was when he found out that Coach K is hanging up his whistle.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, I think, a combination of sad and uh, uh, kind of you can never, it, it was inevitable. I guess, right? You could see it coming with uh, his, if you want to call it, health, uh, you know, kind of having given him issues over the last few years. He's got back problems, what have you. Combine that with uh, what's going on with COVID and everything else, you can kind of see it was going to happen sooner or later. I was just kind of hoping it might be a few more
0: years later. So let's go back to, I guess, the beginning. How did you become a Duke fan to begin with?
2: Uh, It all starts when I was uh, the first year I got into uh, college basketball. So that would have been my first year at University of Queens back in uh, 1983-84. So they were an up-and-coming team. At that point in time, he was a young, hard to believe, looking at him now, but a young up-and-coming disciple of Bobby Knight Uh, and you know just uh, his his background with West Point his coaching style and uh, some of the players on his team just kind of kind of naturally kind of thought oh that's a cool team and they got a neat story so started following them
0: and they became a juggernaut
2: Uh, It took him a few years, but yeah, they uh, have had a number of amazing runs. It's not just been one stretch of players or whatever. It's been these kind of goes and spurts of he'll have a really good team. Like, you know, he always go back to the Christian Lane or Grant Hill teams. And then he kind of had a few down years and they came back again. And a few down years and he came back again. So he's been able to kind of... Reimagine the team and his coaching style, and
0: as he goes. Was there a specific period that kind of stands out the most for you as the the best part of your Duke fandom? Would it have been the early nineties?
2: Yeah, I think it was that uh, that run of four Final Fours with uh, Leitner and Grant Hill and uh, uh, Bobby Hurley. Those teams. Uh, I think it was a combination. I had the time to watch a lot of basketball and they were really good and they had a lot of hype and swagger and what have you so uh, definitely that was kind of where I was a fan up until that point in time and I probably would classify classify myself as a super fan kind of through that period of uh, the early 90s.
0: Just a few years ago we got to go to Duke and I believe that was your first time going. What was that experience like for you to, to actually see a game in person?
2: It was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, you know, when you've watched all the great games that have happened at Cameron Indoor Stadium and then you've seen it on TV for 30 years, but to actually go in there and then feel the energy and feel the the, the fans, you know, the, the students' uh, fans shaking the whole building when they're hopping up and down and stuff like that, it was... Uh, you know, short of you know our trip to see the Bruins uh, win the playoff game, that's probably the highlight of my sporting spectator life.
0: Yeah, we saw game four of the 2011 East semifinal when they swept the Philadelphia Flyers a uh, year yes. after blowing a 3-0 series lead. So there was a bit of tension going into that game, and then they just blew them out. So that was a fine one for you. Uh, so Definitely. are you going to try to go see some games before he calls it quits?
2: Uh, I am if uh, I could make it happen with all the travel restrictions. hopefully going to take the trailer down to North Carolina and maybe, you know, see a couple games of Cameron Indoor and then barnstorm across the south if he's playing at Elon or wherever they're playing, try to catch a couple road games too.
0: Why do you think he never went to the NBA? Was there ever any thought that he would leave Duke at any point?
2: I don't remember there ever being any chatter, talk, hype. I think he's one of those guys, kind of like Bobby Knight was, where he saw his role as not only a basketball coach, but a developer of young men. And he could never fulfill that function as an NBA coach. Right, You can't do it. It's just not part of the job. So I think he really, honestly, everything I've read and what have you, he really felt almost a calling that this is what he, he's got to do. Right? It's to take seventeen, eighteen-year-olds, shepherd them through early adulthood, and try to give them uh, a step ahead for the rest of their life. I'm glad he didn't go to the NBA because most of the college coaches that go to the NBA it doesn't end well.
0: It's true. I know he said it wasn't because the game is, is changing and college basketball has changed so much, but do you think we're kind of losing an era with Roy Williams retiring, with Coach K retiring, and I'm sure Jim Boeheim won't be long behind these longtime legendary coaches and how college basketball has turned into a, a one-and-done paradise?
2: Well, I think that's what you're seeing is, is exactly that transition. You're transitioning from, you know, if you want to call it the story. Basketball programs to basically made-for-TV content, where you want the flashy young coaches who can give the sound bites and can do the the recruiting to get the one-and-dones to drive ratings and all that sort of stuff, right? I, I think you, you look at most people now don't follow you know a given basketball team; they're following the individual players. So I think. I, I, For me, it's kind of a a sad progression where, like, how often do you see a team uh, be in contention for four or five years because they have people that go from being a freshman right through to a fifth year senior uh, playing? It doesn't happen if they're any good by year. If not, they're one and done by year two, they're definitely jumping to the NBA.
0: Coach K really transitioned over, I think, the last 10 years from having a team like they did in 2010 with seniors like Nolan Smith and Kyle Singler and John Shire, who we will get to, to a team now where every year you, you kind of forget who's on the team because it's a complete turnover almost every year.
2: I find it's, it's really gotten difficult as a fan of college basketball, whether Obviously, Duke foremost, but even some of the other, like North Carolina, the Indiana's, uh, you know, the, the great programs of the past, you kind of go, I don't know who's on, because every year it's another batch of top 50, you know, all American high school players, right? You don't get the people, you know, the only people that stay behind are those role player guys coming off the bench predominantly. So it's hard to follow. For sure,
0: I just looked up. Nolan Smith and uh, Singler were both juniors on that team, but Shire was a senior. And speaking of Shire, he's been picked as the replacement. I know people out there probably don't know much about him. He, you know, he never made it in the NBA. He's coached around in, in some spots, assistant wise. Is it even possible for him to be successful following someone like Coach K?
2: Now uh, it all comes down to what you consider successful. Is he going to is he going to win five national champ- championships and be a coach there for forty years? highly doubt that, but uh, I think he's got the goodwill and the uh, philosophy of Coach K that will take him uh, a, a fair ways, and I think because of the program's prestige, he's still going to get uh, pretty good recruiting classes. So he, you know, he's going to be c- competitive, and then it comes down to as seems to be nowadays, it comes down to can you put together the right combination of one and duns to take it through to the final four? And there's no guaranteed recipe for that. You just look at Kentucky and Duke, both they've had success with the one and duns, but they've also had some pretty major failures too. So,
0: so I will tell couple more for you and then I'll I'll let you go watch your uh, your Bruins game here tonight Uh, just looking at the breadth of Coach K's career are you confident in saying he's the greatest men's college basketball coach of all time
2: I am just because he played if you go back you know uh, pre-integration there's some college basketball coaches that had some pretty amazing records and winning percentages but it wasn't really the same basketball, so I think with Coach K having coached as long as he had and coached kind of what we ne- you know coached basketball as we know it uh, under the rules that we know it uh, of today, I think yeah for sure. I don't know the only person you could throw in there would be John Wooden, and he had the you know if you want to call it the luxury of of two uh, top five top 10, maybe, centers of all time uh, as the cornerstones of his teams, right? so
0: Can you confidently say in your heart of hearts that there was never anything untoward that ever happened under the table, under Mike Krzyzewski's reign?
2: I can't, as much as I want to think that, uh, I don't think he knowingly violated uh, NCAA rules about recruiting or stuff like that, but I don't doubt that at times he was playing in the gray areas or was calling on you know his his very wide net of contacts to maybe kind of hey help me recruit this guy you know can you give an unofficial phone call to him and put in a good word for me which probably was against the rules I I don't I I, I find it hard to believe over. Forty years—that hasn't happened once or twice. I don't think he's done anything where money's changed hands. Uh, players have got given cars, or you know, any of the kind of FBI investigation stuff that's happened with some of the other coaches over the last couple of years. But uh, I don't, I don't doubt that somewhere there's kind of like I said in that gray zone. Is it right? Is it wrong? It depends on your perspective.
0: Can you spell Shoshevsky off the top of your head?
2: Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> Give it a shot. Oh. Uh
2: I know it's a K R Y C H No,
0: no. Something. No, no, no. It's K K R Z Y Z E W S K I. Shoshevsky. That's why
2: everybody says coach K. Nobody can spell that.
0: <laughs> I know. It's
2: impossible.
0: Hey, they'll have studied it there will be never another one of them uh, I guess I guess I have to ask you how far are your bruins gonna go this year
2: uh, I like to think they're going to make it to the final again I don't see anybody that can if they're playing on top of their game So I they're can't gonna see beat anybody. Tampa yeah I think they can okay I'm not going to get like i I say it's 50 50 it's going to be one of those things where depending on who gets the whacked out lucky bounce that maybe, you know, gets a goal scored off of somebody's backside or something like that, but
0: they I don't see anybody who's going to just steamroll them, Fair. which is nice. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, thanks for your time tonight, Dad. I'll let you go uh, continue to watch Game 3 tonight on Long Island. Okay. See you later, Christian. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Of course, that is when the Jets are not playing because if the Jets are playing, then I don't have a show, but I'll be part of the pre- and post-game coverage. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. Come on, and thanks for all the it's So sad that come to this. We try to warn you. Share our intellect Which might explain the disrespect For all the natural